Hello, uh, I'm Amy Crawford, and I'm going to read our psalm for us today. In psalm 131, I have calmed and quieted my soul. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. All right. Thank you very much, Amy. Appreciate that. Would you guys pray with me? God, we want to humble ourselves now as we come under your word. I just pray that this would be a time for all of us, uh, for all of us to continue worshiping with you. Would you open our eyes? Would you unstop our ears and just hear the marvelous truths of your good news um, and your gospel in these psalms? Um, Spirit, I just pray that we'd walk from here um, rejoicing together, that the rejoicing would start now, that it would carry into the week. Um, We need you, Jesus, uh, this moment now uh, more than we ever have because of how good you are. I pray this in your name. Amen. Yeah. A couple of announcements first to get started off. We have a soup or something Sunday that will be coming up on October 16th. If you're wondering what the heck that is, all it is is it's basically a church potluck if you grew up in a church. If you don't know what that is because you didn't grow up in a church, it's just bring food, soup or Sunday. It doesn't have to be soup. It could be something. So feel free to bring that. It's going to be different. We're going to be having uh, a worship gathering, um, and there won't be a sermon that Sunday. We'll mainly be singing together, doing some prayer, but also having a baptism that Sunday as well. So if you are interested in baptism, that's something that's been in your soul that God has uh, put on you. I'd love to talk with you about that. Please grab me afterwards. Um, That would be uh, just super awesome to be able to talk with you about that. Um, And uh, the last thing I want to mention is on our welcome table, we have these cards. So we've been going through a sermon series lately through the Song of Ascents. And my sister has been doing artwork every single Sunday. She usually does two or three pictures. And what we did is we put these on a card that has the photo on one side and then the whole psalm on the back, and it's a postcard. So what's great about it is you can fill it out, and I'd encourage you, you know, get old school, send it in the mail to someone who could use some encouragement, or maybe you just need it to put it up on your mirror or somewhere in your house, or simply just write out something and hand it to someone, pray over them encourage each other. Keep the message and the truths that we do here on a Sunday going beyond just these walls. It's not just, uh, it's more than just a 30-minute sermon. It's the truth of God that we want to invest in with our entire life. So with that, um, let's jump into the psalm for this Sunday. So like I've been saying, we've been in a series walking through the Song of Ascents. If you don't know what that is, it's a group of psalms near the end of the book of Psalms. Psalms being these poetic songs that are used in prayer. In fact, the book of Psalms historically has been basically the prayer book for the church, a way to engage God. It is super rich theologically, but also at the same time, the Psalms engage us in our emotions in a very unique way to help us understand who God is and what he's done in our lives and very much Uh, The heart, if you read Psalm 62, there's this idea of pouring your heart out before 
God and then seeing what he's going to do with your heart, how he changes it and directs it. Now, the Song of Ascents is this group of 15 psalms. And if you've ever put together an Apple playlist, Spotify's playlist, or if you happen to be of an older generation that did like, you know, the CDs or maybe the tape cassettes or something like that, I want you to think of that with these group of psalms because what it is is a group that's intentionally organized around a theme. In this case, it's describing a journey, walking from a place far from God, distant, in the desert, and then coming into his near presence, into the very presence of God. And so it describes this journey. And what I love about it is I don't care what your background, who you is, who, who you are, or what you are currently believing in. I can guarantee that you are looking to find peace somehow in this world and that you're on a journey of some sort. And the question you need to be asking yourself is what is that journey and is it actually going to lead me to peace? Because what we believe here is that the only journey that's worth walking that will lead you to true peace is following Jesus Christ. And that these psalms point in that direction. So we're coming near the end of this series. And we're just reading a little three-verse psalm. But it often seems like some of those shorter passages pack a deep and powerful punch behind them. We read over Psalm 130 last week. I believe if, if there was going to be a title track for the Song of Ascents, it would be Psalm 130 because it describes this cry of someone who's finally realized that the darkest place and really the farthest place away from peace and away from God is when we realize our own brokenness and our own depravity, that we realize we're just as guilty as every other single human being that's ever walked this earth because of what sin has done within our lives. And that psalm describes this cycle of hope of coming from a place of down in the depths, covered up, drowning, to being pulled up to a place where you're able to hope again, where you're able to cry out to God knowing that he's listening, where you're able to wait on God trusting that he's going to act and where eventually you come to this place where you're hoping in his deep promises that he is the God who has loyal love, that he is the God who has um, plentiful redemption in his hands. So following up that kind of title track, that, that powerful psalm, comes this little three-verse one, and, and it nestles in very nicely with this one. Charles Spurgeon, who was this old-time English preacher back in the 1800s, had this to say about it. He said, it is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. In, in the previous Psalm 130, we learned about this cycle of hope, but what Psalm 131 does is it keeps you on track. It keeps you on that journey pursuing Jesus and keeping you out of going off the path of following him. We are able to maintain hope in life every day when God is able to tame our prideful soul and when we are able to be calm and quiet before him. And those are the two points that we're going to be looking at as we walk through the psalm. First of all, taming pride. And the imagery within that, to help illustrate it, will be stop being like the wild horses. And then the second point is calming the soul. Become like a maturing child. So let's read Psalm 131. And let's just start with the first verse. It says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not 
raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So taming pride. Taming pride first comes with a humble posture. And the way this, 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 this psalm starts, this idea of like my heart is not lifted up, and then it uses this description of like my eyes are not lifted too high. It's very physical, talking about this kind of posture. And we see this actually throughout the Song of Ascents, this idea that there's this soul posture, the way we act, the way we are engaging God. And thinking about that idea, these eyes being raised too high, I want you to imagine a wild horse with me for a minute. I had the privilege of going to the Aleutian Islands when I was in high school, got to go out there for a month, and there happens to be on some of those islands wild horses. There's a whole history behind that if you want to figure out how the heck did wild horses end up on the Aleutian Islands. It's a crazy story. But I I was uh, interviewing someone, I was homeschooled at the time, and I was interviewing someone who lived on that island, getting his, his, his story about boating around the islands and all that fantastic stuff. And out of the corner of my eye, there's two horses, like, going at it after each other. They are kicking, they are fighting, they're going nuts. And it was super hard for me at the time to focus on this interview and ask this guy questions as these horses are going at it um, out of, outside of his house. And well, that's what's interesting when you think about an unbroken stallion. If you've ever watched movies where that's the case, you can see just in their eyes this defiance of you are not going to tame me. But I think what's interesting about, especially thinking about wild horses on the Aleutian Islands is, sure, they're, they're off on their own, but man, think about their life of kicking each other, <laughs> being dirty, being useless in the middle of the ocean. And I can't help but think about this when you read these first verses. It's someone who's suddenly realizing, like, maybe, maybe I've been a little prideful. Maybe I've been like a wild horse in some ways. It's that defiant look you give someone when you want to show them that you know better and that you are better than them. When our eyes are lifted high, when we're lifting our heart above where it should be, it's becoming the God in your world. You're the maintainer, and you will do it on your own strength. Now, if you're like me, sometimes the first thing that pops into your mind is kind of that type A commanding personality, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's a prideful person. But if you happen to have a personality like me where it's a little more reserved, a little more in the background, you start realizing that pride's a little more sneaky. In fact, often what it can come through as is as savior mode, thinking that you're the one who has to maintain all aspects of life around you, like everyone, your kids, your family, or something. It all depends upon you, and you become the center. You become what's holding the universe up around you. It's believing that, in some ways, you are no longer human, but you have to be more than human. It's when we've forgotten that God is God, and we are not. You see, this psalm, if you look at the very top of it, was written by King David. And, and we're not given any indications of where this might have fit within his story. But we do have uh, in 1 Samuel the descriptions, First and Second Samuel, the descriptions of who David is and how he lived his life. And if you don't know who he is, he was the, the king of God's people 
Israel a long, long time ago. And in fact, when you, when you read the history, like Israel is wanting a king almost as a replacement of God. They want to be like the other nations. And they were warned, they're like, yeah, sure, you can have a king. But it's not going to be as great as you think it will be. And God raised up these kings, and the hope was that these kings would lead their people in worship of God. But oftentimes it got twisted up and they became worshipers of themselves and put themselves at the center of their kingdom, even David. And if you grew up in Sunday school, sometimes we, we get all the tame stories about David and about how he slew giants and about how he wrote these psalms and did all these great things. Um, and it seems to match up with what we read here in Psalm 131. But we also get the stories of how he was like a wild horse and bucked himself off of God's train for his life. He was a king who ended up becoming a murderer, who cheated on his own wife. And we see all, all this happening, and, it may, and what it points at in the big scheme of the Bible is that there's supposed to be a greater king who is to come, that there's someone else who isn't going to be like that. Uh, Jonathan Martin wrote this in his book, The King Psalm Syndrome, where he says, the kingdom suddenly becomes about him, it is not really about the kingdom at all. You see, when, when David had these moments where he became almost like a wild animal, it's because of what pride does. In fact, pride is the original sin. When you go back to Genesis and what happened with Adam and Eve, how did, how did Satan tempt them to get outside of God's good will for them? He used pride. It's like you could be like God. And what's interesting is because they believed that lie, Instead of being able to live out the dignity of, of humanity meant to rule the earth, instead they became like wild beasts. And I mean, think about that with King David's story, or even your own story. When we walk away from God's goodness for our life, it, that's what led King David into murder. It's what led into cheating. And he almost even committed a massacre. Like, when we go against God, we go against the very essence of what it means to be human. We think that we can be kings and lords of our life, and we try to lift ourselves up in opposition against him. That's the result. So we see this with this idea of a humble posture. We're called not to lift ourselves up into a place that humanity was never meant to be at, but instead we're supposed to lower ourselves down. We also see within this a humble occupation. That's the last part of verse 1 where it says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. One thing that's good to do as you are studying the Bible and you're reading it is to get a good concordance where you can look at some phrases and see where else they appear within Scripture. This line where it says, um, too great and specifically too marvelous for me shows up in another place within Scripture, and that's within Job. And we've used Job within the Song of Ascents because his story in many ways is that journey, seeking peace, trying to uh, walk through life even when it gets extremely dark, extremely crazy. Now, if you don't know much about Job, he's this guy. Again, he's lived a long time ago. Uh, at, in his time, he was wealthy. He had it all. He had many kids, and he had much land and animals. I mean, he was practically a billionaire at that time, if you, if you measure it in that way. But he lost all of this within a short amount of time. 
all of his kids died. His wife's telling him to curse God. His body fails him, and he's left scraping his sores in the dust. All his land is destroyed, and, the, and all the animal cattle that he had. It's worse than many situations that we run into. And what we see within his story is Job goes from radical submission to God to eventually just railing against God, judging God's actions. In Job 9:22 through 24, he says, It is all one, therefore I say, he, speaking of God, destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? And this is an example of Job's wild soul, where he is going through some intense suffering, and he is coming up and saying, God, it seems like you are acting in this way, that you are going against the innocent as much as you are going against the wicked. And he calls on God to give an account, to come and speak to him, to give him an answer. And God does. And it's in this beautiful section at the very end of Job, chapters 38 through uh, 42. And this is where it describes the things that are too wonderful. It's taking Job and saying, look, you don't understand what's going on. You can't understand what's going on. God's the one who knows the origin of the universe. He has the power to order the world in spite of its sinfulness, in spite of its brokenness. He is the only one who has wisdom to know exactly why things happen. And so we pick up God's answer in Job uh, 38, in verses 1 through 7. Then Job or then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who shut, who, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed the limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. I mean, Job's at the the bottom. He's asking God to give an account, and God does. He doesn't describe why Job is suffering, but he's basically calling on Job to say, I am God, and trust me. And what's beautiful about this passage is that God would answer Job, that he would answer Job. See, Job was calling God out on God's job instead of humbly trusting him. God was, Job was rising up in pride through self-pity and putting himself equal with God. We are meant to work under God's good authority, ruling over his dominion and his kingdom as ambassadors, as kings, as truth-tellers, as caregivers, but not as God. And so this is what I want to encourage you as we read this first verse. 
is that it's a beautiful thing to be human under God's terms. It's a beautiful thing for your heart not to be lifted up too high. It's a beautiful thing for your eyes not to be raised too high and to occupy yourself with things that are too great and too marvelous. You see, we live in a culture that is very chaotic often. In fact, as I thought about this metaphor of wild horses, I realized, like, that's it. That's our Fairbanks American cultures where there's always something else to be doing, always something more that we can fill our time with, and it's so difficult for us to calm down, to be quiet, and we think that everything is riding on our shoulders. We have to answer that text. We've got to answer that email. We've got to make sure everything's taken care of, and before we know it, without even realizing it, We've come to a place where we believe that we, <laughs> we're, we are God and that God is not God. I want to just give you an example of this uh, from my own life. Way back in the day, back when uh, Radiant wasn't too old and I stepped into the role of a GC leader. And if ever any of you have been in that, it is difficult. And often it's made difficult because of pride. And I... I don't remember the this, this specific scenario. I just remember God's response to me as I was railing against him because my hope was is for people to genuinely change. That somehow if I said the right thing, if, if I did the right thing and people saw me doing the right thing, I could change their heart. And the imagery that came to my mind as I was going through this was it was almost like God is doing this heart surgery on someone and I'm his assistant, but I'm trying to like get in his way with the scalpel being like, I'm going to change their heart when I have no knowledge of how to do that. I don't have any power to be able to do that. And what it felt like was God all of a sudden saying like, get out of my way. (laughs) Get out of my way. And I felt like a dog with its tail between its legs where I realized, oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm trying to do something that I'm way out of my depth doing and maybe I need to depend on the surgeon rather than trying to be the assistant taking over heart surgery. And so I want to encourage you, maybe you've run into that. Maybe you're in that place in life now where it just seems like everything's out of control and it's so easy to get into this narrow tunnel vision of life right in this moment without stepping back, looking up at the stars and realizing, wait, there is a creator who's taking care of all those things that are too great and too wonderful for me to even comprehend. We need to let be God be in charge and be content with being like a maturing child. And that leads us to the second part of the psalm, calming the soul, being like a maturing child. Let's look at the last two verses. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The description that's being on here, it's giving us an example a weaned child. What that means, if you're not familiar with the term, is it's a a child who has gone beyond needing the milk of its mother and is not just going to its mother to get food, but actually has comfort without needing the food. And it's that sweet moment that I think many mothers long for at one point where it's like, oh, you love me for who I am, not just because of what you can get from me. It's a child who now has a loving and trusting relationship with their mom and not one in which they just need breast milk to keep alive. It speaks to a maturing relationship, which is what God 
desires of us. And think, think about what happens when children reach this point. It's, they actually have responsibility. They actually can do things within the household, especially more in these ancient times where it was to, to operate as a family in a rural setting meant like, yeah, your whole family has to work together to make sure that things happen. It's why Jesus, later on when he was walking this earth, would use this analogy for the kingdom of heaven. In Mark 10, 13 through 16, it says, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, some criticize this passage and criticize Jesus' followers, right? It's like, if life is just like being a child and and being little and not growing, like how stupid is that? But what Jesus is describing is a maturing process when it comes to our relationship with God, with the God of the universe. I mean, think about how if you've ever done any sort of occupation, have you ever had that person who like walks in day one and thinks they know everything there is about what you're doing? They think they can run the whole business and make it sing because they've got all this wisdom and they're like, you know, 18 years old and think they figured the whole entire world out. I know this because I've been that person, right? It's this pride and arrogance, and if you're older, you're just like, okay, buddy, like, just give it about five days, and you're going to be kicked on your butt, depending on what the job is. And I think that's what we see when we come um, into a relationship with Jesus. In fact, when Jesus was talking with the Pharisee Nicodemus in John 3, he uses this example of being born again. Like this whole process of coming into relationship with God is like being born again, growing into a child and going through this maturing process. And what I love is going back to the story of Job. We see this happen in the midst of his dark struggles. He was railing against God. He was like a wild horse. But after God speaks to him, And gives him a glimpse, just a glimpse of the universe. Job responds in Job uh, verse, or chapter 42. If you'll turn there. It's in Job 42, verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And Job says, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And I'll just read the rest. He says, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. And Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The power behind that last verse is like, Job has already gone through this like crazy humbling spot. He's literally already in the dust, scraping his sores, but he realizes his soul posture has been lifted higher than it should be, and he has to come to this place of humility, and that's when he finds what he was looking for. That's when he finds peace with God. This is before he even gets things restored in his life. He still has lost everything, and yet here he comes, humble. He's found the peace he was looking for. And this is what's supposed to set us apart as a people. 
This is the power of the gospel to calm and quiet our souls because we don't have to worry like the rest of the world worries. We don't have to rage against the issues of today. We don't have to be stressed out. We don't have to be like wild horses bucking against the loving direction of Jesus. So what are those things that are worrying you today? What's causing you to be unsteady? What's stressing you out at home, in the silence, towards your friends and family? And maybe they really aren't that important. Maybe they're things that are way above you as a human being that God has to take care of. I mean, think about this. In Philippians 2, 3 through 5, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is the power of the gospel, isn't it? Is it Jesus, king of the universe, who was there at the very beginning, one with the Father, comes as a human onto earth, and he lowers himself. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to at all, and yet he does it for our sake, to go to the cross to be absolutely humiliated, to go to the depths and darkness of hell on our behalf, to take the brokenness of our sin upon him, so that through his resurrection, we can find that peace. We can actually be calm and steady because he walked out of that grave and he did not stay dead. The cross is what tames our prideful and wild soul. It's trust and belief in the resurrection that calms us and steadies us. A calm and steady soul is one where the Savior holds you instead of you trying to hold the world. It's the only way to make this journey to real peace because you were never meant to be the center of the universe. You simply don't have enough gravity to be able to do that. Only Jesus does. And so we see at the very end of this psalm, this, it, again, this is classic song of a sense at this point. It starts out with a, with a personal plea, a personal prayer to God, but then it ends in this like ovation of a whole people together on the same page, crying out together, and they say, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And what I love about hope, when you look at the definition of that word in Hebrew, it's the same as waiting. And isn't that kind of the truth behind what hope is? You can't hope without having to wait. Hope is something that we believe in. Hope is something that cannot be seen yet. But when we are able to hope in the Lord, as a, as a whole body, as a whole church, hoping in the Lord, I mean, think about the wild horse again. Think about the horse that's been tamed. All of a sudden, it can be useful for work. It can have dignity. It can be taken care of and well-loved by a good master. And it's the same thing with us as humans. Our purpose, everything that we were built for, everything of who we are can only be used in true purpose if we are under the loving authority of Jesus Christ. And this command is for a whole community. And that's why we gather on Sunday. We gather on Sunday to remember this. We gather on Sunday to calm and quiet our souls before Jesus, before we walk into a week where all sorts of things are going to bombard us. This is why we have gospel communities that live throughout the week, because we need to do this together. It's absolutely essential. It is vital. It is 
critical. We are here today to cry together, hope in Jesus. Romans 12, 12 says this, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And it gives us the reality of the journey. This isn't something that all of a sudden it like clicks and we're this perfect person and now we're just going to live strong lives for Jesus from this day forth and forevermore. No, it's this repetition. It's this persevering. It's like the cycle of hope that we talked about before where we're going to hit moments of darkness. We're going to hit moments of temptation where Satan will want to distract us towards pride, towards making ourselves the center of the universe and use this psalm as a weapon. Use this psalm as a sword when those temptations come up. Use it when darkness threatens to remember, okay, it's, it's all right. I don't... I'm not God, but God is, and I will trust in him just like Job did. We do this together. We do it together as the church. So I want to encourage you in this. If you're looking for something to do this week to engage God uh, in a devotional lifestyle, take Isaiah 40, chapter 40, the whole chapter, or take Job 38 through 42, and slowly read through it, and I'd encourage you, um, maybe print it off, have a highlighter, and just mark a few things. Ask a couple of questions. One is, where am I bucking against God like a wild horse? Where I don't, I don't want to go along his way or follow his path. Where am I trying to control my world when I shouldn't be? Where do I need to be calm and trust God with my life? You see, God might not give you the reasons for whatever's happening in your life, but he can give you the peace to walk through it. He will walk with you through the shadow of the valley of death, and you don't have to fear evil. Let's pray. God in heaven, I just pray, I just pray that we would take this little psalm to heart that has big implications for us. Uh, individually, and it has great implications for us as a church. I pray that we would be a church that humbles itself in this way, in such a powerful way that we look weird to everyone else when the, wor- the rest of the world is burning, that we're able to be calm and quiet because we know that you're in control. We know how the story ends, Jesus, that you are coming back and you are returning. We thank you. Jesus, for what you did on the cross and through your resurrection. We pray this in your name. Amen.